0: But to give it some context and some understanding, I'll start reading from verse 19. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, giving to us your word, and we thank you that your word is consistent. And so no matter who it is up here in the pulpit preaching it, uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that we, your people, are being formed and shaped by your word, that our minds and our hearts and our lives are being aligned into conformity with the truth here. And so today, as we look, Lord, give to us insight, give to us understanding, Father, some of us may be tired, some of us may be sick, some of us may be distracted. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you, in this time, uh, quicken us, restore us, bring to us, uh, bring us into full attention so that we could hear your voice clearly that we could understand that we would respond as you would have us, Lord. So bless this time. We pray and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So we're back in our series on the core values. And what the core values we're doing, we're basically answering these questions, if you remember. What is most important to us as a church? And we say the core values weren't just opinions or uh, preferences, but they were convictions. They were uh, commitments that we had. And so far, we've looked at the core values of disciple-making and global missions. And so today, we're considering the core value of community fostering. Community fostering. So what does that mean uh, simply put, community fostering is this. It means that we want to be a place where biblical community is created so that Christians can live that out. Christians can practice and enjoy what the Bible commands so clearly. Uh, living the Christian life apart from living it in community is sort of like going into uh, going to watch a movie in 3D, a 3D movie, and not being given the 3D glasses. But have you ever seen a movie in 3D, and taken off the, all you see is blurry, it's dull. And in the same way the Christian life is incomplete, it's dull if you're not living the Christian life in community. And if some of you think, well, you know, my Christian life is fine, I'm not, I go to church, but you know, I don't feel the need to go to these other sort of groups, these other meetings, my life is fine, living life, loving Jesus on my own, that's fine. If you say that, let me tell you this, that living your life in a community, we'll be so much better. It'll be like watching a movie with the sound off and you can enjoy it, but once you turn the sound on, it's a whole other experience. And this is because God has made us to be communal beings. He's made us for community. You know, you may have heard it said that those who go alone get to their destination more quickly. But those who go together journey further. We, we want to be a church that doesn't just get where we need to go faster just by ourselves, but together we're going further. And what does that further mean? It means further in our maturation and growth in Christ. It means further in our discipleship and further in our sanctification. It means further in our obedience to God and love for Jesus. And so what we want to do in this church is to have it be a place where true biblical gospel-centered community is being fostered, and what that looks like specifically is meeting outside of just this appointed worship time, outside of just our regular Sunday services where you can share, you know, struggles and doubts and fears and tears, and you can share joys and victories, and you can share reasons for thanksgiving and celebration. We want community to be a place where you not only know but you are known. And so the gospel truth is this. God gives us community so we can press on together in faith. God gives to us a community. Community is a gift so that we can press on forward together in faith. And so uh, I have uh, a PowerPoint so that you can follow. The first point is this. We have three points this afternoon. The first is this, the call to one anothering. The call to one anothering. Uh, look with your Bible at me, or look at your Bible, look, look with me at your Bible. Uh, particularly, I want to draw your, your attention to two words in verses 24 and 25. Um, there, th- there's this, and let us consider how to stir up one another, right? And then in verse 25, uh, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now, I draw your attention to these words because if you look at the entirety of the Bible, right, and here specifically in Hebrews, but entirely the Bible, you'll quickly realize that there's a lot of places in the Bible where you can't obey it or you can't make sense of it unless you are in community. The authors of the New Testament assume that you're part of a community. And this is what we call the one-anothering. All the commandments to one another don't make sense if you're just a Christian living on your own. You know, Tim Keller says that the Christian life or that Christians aren't just like marbles in a bag that slip and slide past one another, that Christians are instead like a cluster of grapes organically connected to one another through the vine, Jesus Christ. So if you read through the Bible, you will see all of these one-anotherings, these call to one another. Welcome one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Bear one another's burdens. Abound in love for one another. Always seek good Always seek to do good to one another. The list goes on and on. I went to BibleGateway.com, typed in one another, and you'll get more than 100 hits. There's so many calls to one anothering in the Bible. And so if you're a Christian and you're reading the scriptures and you get to these one anotherings, how can you possibly live this out if you are not together in community? Which leads to this interesting thought that if you're not involved in community you're being disobedient to a lot of Scripture. If you are trying to live the Christian life on your own, you cannot fill, fulfill these one-anothering calls. So if that's true, then how should the church respond? If this is in Scripture, what should the church do? Can the church continue to promote individual spirituality and a perspective on the Christian life you know, that just is, hey, it's about you and Jesus, And make sure you love him and doing your QTs and, you know, just coming to church on Sundays, but it's about you and Jesus. No, the church can't do that, because the Bible's not letting us do that. The Bible says, no, we're called to do this together. We're called to live out the Christian life together, and so the church needs to promote community. The church actually needs to say This needs to be a core value. We want to expend our our resources and our time and our energy so that we are fostering community so that you can be faithful to what Scripture is saying. And let me be clear here, just because you go to church does not mean you're in community. Getting involved in community means getting involved in each other's lives. It means getting your life tangled up in somebody else's. It means being vulnerable and and sharing. It means rejoicing together. It means being known. Community is not just worshiping side by side. Community is not just sitting next to one another as you hear a sermon. Community is not just chit-chatting outside about sports and work and family over donuts and coffee. Community is much more than that. And so that's why, if if you're wondering why we're increasing our frequency of community group gatherings is for this very reason. We understand that in order to foster Christian community and Christian one another, we need to create the space where it's possible, where real intimate and genuine relationships can be formed. And so the young adults are meeting weekly. The youth group on Friday nights are meeting weekly. Uh, Families, we know you're busier, so we're asking you to meet every two weeks. But we're increasing it so that this kind of biblical one-anothering can happen. And I really believe that when the people of God are gathered together, something powerful is happening. Something powerful does happen. God works through community. God works through other people. So many times we ask God, God, would you encourage me in this way? God, would you help me in this way? And the Lord is doing that, but he'll do it through others. You know, here's an example. Have you heard the footprints in the sand poem? It's a very famous poem. If you don't know what it's like, I'll just briefly explain it. Uh, a person has a dream, and in this dream, they're walking with God on the beach. And as they're walking, um, scenes of their life flash before them on the skies. And the person begins to notice that there are two sets of footprints, um, and every time life was good and things were going well, that there are two, two sets of footprints. It was them and God, and they were walking together. But then they notice that they were, <coughs> in, the, in the times of the most... Uh, difficult and seasons, uh, seasons of suffering and trial, that there was only one set of footprints, and the person begins accusing God, saying, God, when I needed you most, you left me. Look, there's only one set of footprints, and, and God says, you dummy. <laughs> he says, in those times where there's one set of footprints, in those most difficult times, I didn't leave you. I was carrying you. That's why there's one set of footprints, and you know, that's such a great poem, and it gets his point across, but when you stop and you really think about it, it's really controlled by an individualistic understanding of the Christian life. I think the story needs to be modified, and if I were to modify it, this is how I would do it. It would pretty much still be the same, same scenario. You're walking with God on the beach, and you see the scenes of your life flashing in the sky. You see two Uh, Two sets of footprints when things were very good and you were walking with God. But then you notice that in the most troubling and difficult times of your life that there weren't just one set of footprints, but there were ten. And you ask God, what happened here? Why are there so many sets of footprints? And that's when God reminds you that in the times of suffering and struggle, the community of believers were carrying you. That God was working through other Christians who took seriously the command to one anothering. And so when you were struggling, you look back in their 10 sets of footprints it's because there were 10 people who were bearing your burdens, who were comforting you, who were praying for you, who you were leaning on. See, this is what we want to see in community. Not just people side by side, but people arm in arm. Not just people seat by seat, but people hand in hand. I believe this is the picture that the Bible is laying out for community. This should be our goal. This should be our aim. You know, not just to create a a social community, not just a place where you can make friends. If you want to have a social community and you want to make friends, you should join a bowling league. But if you want to know brothers and sisters in Christ who will care for you, who will walk together with you, who we we'll live out this one anothering then start here investing in community here investing in your community groups and so i think the bible is clear to this call to one anothering but what makes a community a community what do you practice in that and that's our second point it's the components of community and there are three components or three <coughs> excuse me three ingredients of community in these two verses, and this is where I wanted to focus most of our sermon. They are these three things, consideration, encouragement, and commitment. So first, uh, consideration. Look with me at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The author of Hebrews first exhorts us, exhorts the reader to consider Now, that word is not strong enough. You read the word consider, but what it actually means, a better translation might be, let us be concerned for, or let us care for. In fact, one scholar writes this, let us direct our minds toward and reflect on how to stir up one another. The point is that the readers were being exhorted to focus their minds and direct their energies on others, so a community should be marked with this kind of care and this concern that other people are on your mind and they're on your heart and they're in your prayers even when they're not in your sight. True community is lived out when you think of people in the middle of week at odd hours of the day, not just when you see them. It's easy to think of people and their concerns and the things they are going through when you see them. That's easy to do, but you demonstrate true concern, a true care for them, when they would otherwise be out of sight and out of mind. So the author of Hebrews is saying, consider, think about, in community, think about, have a concern and care for others. Why? To stir up one another to love and good works. What he's saying is we're called to not only just think about one another, but how that person is living out the gospel. To love, to love God, to love others, to love their family, to do good works. You see, growth as a Christian, your maturity as a Christian, isn't just your concern. It's the community's concern. When a member of the community is not growing in faith, when there's no joy in the Christian life, you need to consider how to stir them up. It's not just their issue. It's your issue. You know, the author of Hebrews doesn't say, let us leave people alone when they're struggling in love and good works. He says, let us consider how to stir them up. And what that means, it's not just, oh, I haven't seen you in church in a while. Why don't you come out? I mean, that's important. But it's much more than that. It's much more than just church attendance. When someone appears to be stagnant in their spiritual life, when there is apparent joylessness, spiritual plateauing, As a member, does that bother you? Does seeing someone suffer, seeing someone struggle, does that kind of, not annoy you, does that kind of arouse in you just an unsettling feeling? That's not right for them to be struggling in that way. I want to consider how to stir them up. That word stir is actually a negative word. It means to agitate. How can I agitate them to greater love, to greater works? You know, in our family, we have this story um, about my sister. This took place over 20 years ago. Uh, we're originally from the West Coast. We were all, my whole family was born in Seattle, and we moved over to Baltimore in the East Coast, and uh, 20 years or so ago, we had a cousin from the West Coast come and visit us. He was from Seattle, and he was closer to my sister's age, and so they were playing outside, and, you know, she's asking how are things going, and, you know, how's uh, living cl- uh, near our grandmother, who's also from Seattle, and, and he began complaining, and he said to her, you know, I don't like grandma because she didn't give me pop. And he goes, even if I beg her, and I'm like, please, please, please she'll never give me pop. And my sister was flabbergasted. She's like, how could grandma not give you pop? Pop, by the way, is um, the Korean word for rice, which is like, this, you know, the most consistent dish in any meal. And my sister hearing that, feeling compassion for my cousin that he was so neglected, runs to my mom and reports on my grandma saying that Christopher, our cousin, is being mistreated and the basic necessities of life are being withheld from him and something needed to be done because she was not being, he was not being fed properly. Well, long story short, after a little investigation, what we found out is uh, grandma was not refusing to give him pop, but pop which on the West Coast is soda, <laughs> soda pop. Christopher <laughs> and that grandma wasn't letting him have soda, but it's a funny story that we tell. It's an honest mistake, but it actually, we, we tell it, it, it as a way of encouraging my sister because she's the type of person who will hear something like that and she won't go, oh, man, that sucks. She'll have to do something about it. You know, in the same kind of way, you know, as Christians, when we hear this as someone is sharing and they say, you know, just things aren't going so well or, you know, it's, it's been a little difficult or, you know, I don't really sense God anymore. We have two options to say, oh, man, that, that's unfortunate and kind of move on or to do something about it. Does your concern translate into action? So if you heard that a member was, you know, struggling in their spiritual life, that things were chaotic a little bit, or maybe they're saying, you know, I feel like life is just, you know, a storm, tumultuous waters, or maybe they're saying, you know, life just seems to be like a dry desert. And when someone tells you that, tells you that they're having a difficult time sensing the Lord's presence, that should bother you, that should nag you. You know, so much so that you're watching a movie with your family and that person just pops into your head. The Holy Spirit is placing them on your heart, and you can't enjoy the movie because now you're thinking about the person. You're thinking, how can I stir them up? How can I pray for them? How can I encourage them? So imagine a community where every single person is on somebody else's mind, which means that you're on somebody's mind. Somebody's thinking about you. How can I pray for them? how can I stir them up? How can I help them? How can I urge them to press on? Richard Phillips writes, we're all accustomed to think only of ourselves, but our thoughts are better given to others. Is someone doubting? Is he discouraged? Is she tempted? Without needless prying, we should give thought to the condition of those around us. If we are not doing this, then we are nothing more than takers consumers of religion who are of little use for their eternal destiny of other people. We're simply takers and consumers. We want to be a community here that is committed to considering. Second is encouragement. You see in verse 25, the author writes that we're not to neglect meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now encouragement in the Bible is not merely offering um, false words of praise or petty compliments. That's not what true encouragement is. Encouragement is throwing your weight of your support behind another person. In- encouragement is lifting them up to see a hope they cannot presently see. I came across this great story um, by Kent Hughes. Uh, well he tells Kent Hughes, Ken Hughes tells it of a, of a man named Robert Maynard, and he wrote in this interview, Maynard tells a story that when he was a young boy, he was walking to school. And as he was walking, he saw a sidewalk, and there was a chunk, a block, section of the sidewalk that was covered because their freshly laid cement had been placed over it. And, you know, as a little boy, that's, you know, that urge comes over you to run over and write your name, and so that's exactly what he did. He went over, took a stick, and he started writing his name in some cement. But then he felt this presence looming over him and in instinct he started to take off but as soon as he did he felt a hand grab him by the back and pull him over the man shouted at him why are you trying to spoil my work and in fear and panic Maynard was able to get out you know all I was doing was writing my name sir and then the man released him and he turned around as a man in his construction clothes The man, his voice is softened and he asked the boy, What's your name? Robert Maynard, he responded. And then the man had a complete change of demeanor and he said, Well, Robert Maynard, the sidewalk is no place for your name. If you want your name on something, go to school and work hard and be somebody. What do you want to be when you grow up? A writer, the boy replied. A writer? A writer. Then be a writer. Be a real writer. Have your name on books, not on the sidewalk. And as Robert Maynard tells it, he heard that, and he crossed the street. And as he crossed the street, he looked back, and the man was on his knees. He was repairing the damage on the cement. But he kept looking at him until the man looked up again and shouted, Be a writer. Well, a writer, Robert Maynard, went on to be. He went to Harvard University on a scholarship. And he became the first African American to own a major metropolitan newspaper, and he t- uh, the Oakland Tribune. And uh, when he took over, within a few years, he turned it into a Pulitzer Prize writing journal. And you, see you hear a story like that, and you think, well, that's the power of encouragement. When you're able to encourage somebody, at helping somebody see that which they cannot yet see. So, we take that idea of encouragement, and what does that mean in a gospel centered community? It means helping, it means seeing somebody through the eyes of grace and then giving giving them insight into that. It means giving a person insight into what God is doing in them that they cannot see. It means giving them insight into what God is doing through them that they cannot see. Or perhaps it means giving them insight into what God has done for them that they cannot see. This is an essential component of Christian community, encouragement that attunes a person to God and his grace. And this is what's going to separate true gospel-centered community from merely Christians just coexisting and sitting next to one another in worship. And I know many of us have known each other for a long time, and so we know how to exist next to one another. We know how to worship together. But maybe it's difficult to encourage one another, to really actually give life-giving Words and how to bless one another in our speech. The community that we want to encourage here at Cornerstone is one that's built on encouragement. Seeing each other through the eyes of grace, seeing what God's grace is doing in a person, see what God's grace is doing through a person, see what God's grace has done in a person, and reminding each other of that. That's what encouragement is. Pointing each other to something that they cannot yet see, pointing them to something beyond their doubts and struggles and concerns and worries and stress. Thirdly, the third component of community is commitment. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is is the habit of some. So considering one another and encouraging one another, that can only happen when you're meeting together. If you're not meeting together, then, yeah, you can consider all you want, but you can never encourage them because you're never having face-to-face time with them. You know, here's what's really interesting about this passage. If you know about the background of the book of Hebrews, at the time Hebrews was written, the audience is going through extreme persecution by the Roman <coughs> government. And there were a lot of people who stopped at meeting together because when they were meeting and they got found out, they would be persecuted. Right? I mean, martyrdom was possible. You could be killed for your faith. And so a lot of people got in the habit of not meeting together. And what's really interesting is this. God is saying, God God is fully aware of their circumstances, yet even despite the possibility of martyrdom and persecution, even then God is still saying, don't neglect meeting together, keep meeting together. And it makes me think, so then how much more should we be committed to meeting together? You know, if God is saying Christian community is so important, even if you might get neglected, or even if you might get persecuted, don't neglect it. How much louder do we hear God saying to us that we need to be committed to meeting regularly together, even if we're tired or we don't feel like going or our kids have a sporting event? Christian community is based on a commitment to gathering. And it's easy, again, I say, say this, to assume that the author meant, oh, Just gathering together, that means Sunday gatherings. No, it doesn't. Actually, Sunday gathering is not in view here because in the early church, the community of faith, they met much more than just Sundays. Earlier, if you actually read in Hebrews 3, the author had written, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today because people in the early church were meeting frequently, often every single day for exhortation, encouragement, and consideration Now, the point is not this. I'm not saying, therefore, every Christian here needs to meet every single day. That's too much. The Bible does not say how often that we should meet outside of the Sunday service. But the number is not important. The principle in view here is regular and uh, faithful and regular uh, committed meeting times. And so for us, that may look like twice a month and making that a real priority And not neglecting to meet together as as is the habit of some. And for the young adults, a little harder because it's every week. And for the youth group, but let us not forsake meeting together. Because the 30 minutes on Sundays after the sermon, after the worship, that's not enough. Nor is that sometimes the appropriate place for you to actually begin to share some things that you really want to. Things that are on your heart. And this is important because when believers are connected in this kind of way, when they're linked together, right, they're only stronger for it. There is no group of Christians that is committed to meeting regularly and biblical one anothering and they're weaker as a result. There's no such thing. You are only stronger. You know, if you go to California, I, I read this recently uh, about the redwood trees in California. You know, some of the tallest and the, and the oldest trees, some of them are hundreds of feet high and a couple of them are over like a thousand years old old. But what was interesting about this that I was reading was that the trees that are so tall, so old, so strong, so enduring, it's not because their root systems go deep. In fact, actually, when you compare the root systems of the redwoods to other trees, it's very shallow. The redwood trees that go about over 100 feet high, you know how deep their root system is? Only five or six feet but the reason that they're able to stand strong, the reason that the wind can't push them over is because over the centuries, these roots, they don't go down deep, they go wide, and as they go wide, the roots become connected. They become linked and locked, intertwined and interlocked to one another and so that they hold each other up. And that's what we want to see happening in community, that our lives our faith intertwine, interlock; that we are supporting each other because we're God's people. So what we know we're called to do, we're called to meet together, we're called to one anothering. And when we do that, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to consider how to stir one another up. We're called to encourage one another. We're called to be committed to meeting. But why? Why should we do that? And that leads to our third point, the day drawing near. All three component, components should be motivated by this key truth. Look at how verse 25 ends. Not neglecting to meet one another as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews closes with this motivation. The day is drawing near. This is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. All right, and, and it seems like the motivation is simple, Oh, as Christians consider Jesus coming back on the final day, we should practice this one-anothering and this fostering of community. But this is really important. This is the key. The author is not telling us to be obedient and to do these things because when Jesus comes back, he's going to see our efforts and he's going to see how hard we're trying and he's going to reward us. The day of Christ's return is not meant to scare us into obedience. He's not saying, Jesus is coming back, so you, you guys better get ready. No, that's not it at all. If you read verses 19 and 22, the author already told us that the work of Christ on our behalf is enough. It's acceptable to God in our place. Let me just go back and read this. Because it's all about what Jesus has done. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What is the author saying? The author is saying this. The first time Jesus came to this world, he came to fulfill the work that we could never do. And Hebrews is telling us it's through his blood that we're given confidence to stand before God. That through his flesh, he tore the curtain in half so that we can draw near to God with a true heart of full assurance. He's saying, Jesus did this already. Jesus died for you. He rose again for you, so you have access to God. Jesus died, now you are linked together. You are brought into community together. Therefore, the day of Jesus drawing near isn't meant to scare you. It's not meant to say, get into shape because he's coming near. Rather, it's meant to excite us. It's meant to increase your longing. Because the first time Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross for you. He washed away your sins. He united you to himself, and he united you to one another. You're formed as a community. And so as you meet together, because he's done this for you, we consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. We become committed to regularly meeting. We continue to encourage one another as we await his glorious return, as he promises to take us into glory and take us home. Maybe I could put it this way. Jesus took our punishment, so we don't nervously wait like, you know, disobedient children. When I would bring home that report card, and my mom would say, wait until dad gets home, and then I, you know, put on a suit and wait till dad gets home to impress. No, it's not meant to scare you. It's not... Jesus is coming soon. The day is strong in there, so you better get yourself in shape together. No, not at all. Jesus already, Jesus already took the punishment for us. Jesus already forgave us. Jesus already made us presentable before God. Instead, we wait expectingly, like a betrothed bride, and Jesus is on the other side, and we're waiting the great wedding day, that kind of anticipation, the butterflies in your stomach, because the groom is coming. That day is drawing near. So you're filled with celebratory joy. And because he's coming, you want to make all the preparations. You want to make everything right. We want to meet together. We want to encourage one another. We want to spur each other on. We want to consider one another. Because Jesus is going to come back. The day is drawing near, and it will be a wonderful time. So let's meet. So let's encourage one another to find hope in that day. Let's meet in community to help each other focus our hope again on Christ, especially when we lose sight of him. Let's be committed to our small groups to remind each other the greater truth of the gospel when we get caught up in the things of this world. Let's not neglect meaning so that we can lift each other up to see and hope in the day of his return when we become so overtaken by present trials and present sufferings. Let's consider each other throughout the week and reflect on how we can spur one another towards the goal, which is Christ Jesus, who is returning to claim us. Let's encourage each other with glimpses of God's grace and work in each other's lives and the assurance that he'll complete it in us when he has started. And we do this in eager anticipation of the one who draws near. Because we can draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. This is what community group is about. It's not just coming together and doing the eating and we got to read some passage and then share some prayer requests. Which, by the way, this is an aside when we ask for prayer requests, parents, we're asking for your prayer requests. We know your children have issues. <laughs> we'll pray for your children, but we're asking for your prayer request, Because that's what community is. It's not, a, it's not a support group where parents come and just kind of say, my kid is doing this and my kid is doing Yes, yeah, okay, but we will pray that you have grace to deal with your children. We pray that you have wisdom to respond accordingly. The community groups aren't just coming together to socialize, but coming together because Jesus is drawing near, and we're getting ready for it, to encourage, to spur one another on, to commit ourselves to meeting regularly. And so with one eye, we look toward the day of Jesus, and with the other, we look to our community, and we do the hard work of trying to foster in our community, a deep love for the word, for Jesus. We dig into each other's lives, not to pry, not to be nosy, not to get gossip out, so we could take that into the throne room and intercede and pray on your behalf. And so for all of these reasons, we want to begin this year making community fostering a core value, a core value of this church, so that we can press on all the more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this afternoon, and I thank you for this word, and um, Father, I pray that you will have challenged us, um, maybe some of us have lived our Christian lives so independently um, by ourselves that we're not used to, um, and it's uncomfortable for us, maybe we've been burned, God, you, you know it, maybe we've been burned in trying to get close to a group of believers, and and, and we just were hurt or betrayed or, um, or whatever's prese- preventing us, Lord, from really trying to live life on life and, and, and share, and, and, and we want to protect the messiness of our lives by, by wearing a smile and just being superficial. Father, would you break through that so that here at Cornerstone we can com- foster a community that's really um, pressing each other on toward the goal, toward the, f- toward the hope toward Christ. And one way, Lord, that you do that is you invite us um, to the table, because the table is a family meal, and in the table, Lord, we come together uh, when we share that which we have most in common, uh, the Lord Jesus. And so as we come to the table, Lord, we pray that you would bless us um, as we partake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who promises he is coming soon and the love of God the Father Almighty who sent to us the very gift of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who stirs in us great desire not only for Christ but for his people. May the blessing of this triune God be working in us to help foster a gospel-centered community. Amen. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Go in peace.